Grace and mercy and peace be to you from God our Father and our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Today's message is Ten Sleepy Virgins, uh, based on the parable read to you before from Matthew chapter 25. It's about a wedding that kind of went bad. Now, as I prepared this message, I got to thinking back about the weddings that I have done. <clears throat> I checked, uh, to date I've done 153 weddings. Now, all of them were planned to be grand and glorious occasions, but there were a few that kind of stuck out for another reason. For example, the very first wedding I ever did was my niece. And as she knelt for the time of the wedding vows, she fainted. And we had to take her back to a pew and fan her until she came to again. Uh, another one started about two hours plus late because the bride and her maid of honor kind of sort of forgot where the church was. That was their story. Then there was the wedding when I was on crutches after leg surgery and the maid of honor started to stagger, fainted, shot forward, rammed her head right into the altar and knocked herself unconscious. Memorable wedding. Then there was the one when it came to the time, you know, when the pastor says, it gives me great pleasure to introduce the new Mr. and Mrs. I did it and I said the wrong name. And I'd known this couple for a long time, but I said it gives me great pleasure to introduce the new Mr. and Mrs. John Johnson. And everybody laughed, and I said very quickly, but they're not here today, so let me introduce instead the new Mr. and Mrs. John Olson. And how could I forget the wedding I did where the bride was the former Miss Texas, had been a Dallas Cowboy cheerleader. I told her when she asked me to do her wedding, I said, I'm not sure if I'm good enough looking to be in this wedding. But it turned out fine because at the reception, one of the Dallas Cowboy football players came up to me, fist bumped me and said, cool wedding, dude. And so that kind of made my day. Well, we're going to talk about another wedding today. And this is a wedding, uh, it's a nighttime wedding where everything seemed to go wrong. In spite of the fact that there was probably a lot of planning put into this wedding. Uh, the groom shows up so late that the bridal party falls asleep on the side of the road. Uh, when the groom finally arrives at midnight, half of the bridesmaids had forgotten to bring enough oil for their lamps and end up being banned from the wedding reception. And as the story concludes, these rejected bridesmaids are standing outside the door, banging on the door, asking, please let us in. But to no avail, they have been shut out completely from that wedding banquet. Kind of a sad ending, but uh, other than that, a pretty normal wedding. Now, this is the parable that Jesus taught. Now, understand that parables, as I was taught as a young kid, these are earthly stories with heavenly meanings. I always like to look at a parable and say, what's the kingdom of God like? Because that's what it says. The kingdom of God is like. Well, what is God's kingdom like? What is the king like? What are the king's subjects like? How should the king's subjects act? And I think we're going to see this in today's text. Now, this is all aimed at the last verse of the text, where Jesus brings it all to a conclusion, say, this parable about these ten sleepy virgins is all about being prepared for the second coming of Jesus Christ. Now, I think this, is, this parable is really a masterpiece. Each de detail adds kind of a piece of crucial information. Now, as I studied this, and you'll see on the screen, I was struck by one phrase here in particular. It's in verse 10, 
and the door was shut. You know, that's kind of a, an awful finality in those words. It means the door was shut, the door was locked, it would not be opened up again. Those on the inside were safe, and those on the outside, well, they weren't going to get in no matter what they did. Now, I hope you understand that this is kind of an allegory also to talk about there is a door, an entry into heaven today. It is the door of God's grace. It is held open, if you will, by the bloody cross of Jesus, the Messiah. And for over 2,000 years since Jesus has been here, that door is wide open and it's still open today. And over those doors, I could almost imagine the words printed, whosoever will may come. God always has this invitation. The door is still open, but you better get it here, get in here before the door is ultimately shut. So Jesus tells us this story of these ten virgins, these ten bridesmaids, uh, because we need to know something. And maybe what we need to know is about first century weddings. In these day, in those days, you got married in three different stages, a little bit different than what we do today. Stage number one was the formal engagement, which was almost always arranged by the parents. It wasn't some young guy, you know, going hormonal over some girl and, you know, setting up a big stage and having balloons and sky riders and all that kind of fancy stuff people to do today and ask them to be married. No, mom and dad arranged that wedding. Now, some months later, here's step number two, and sometimes it was nearly a year, then they would have a formal wedding service, which was somewhat similar to a wedding service that we would have today. But the third part was to have this big wedding celebration put on by the groom. And this happened uh, sometimes days, sometimes weeks, sometimes months after the wedding ceremony. It almost always happened at night, and it would last sometimes up to seven days. Now, my wife would tell you I'm almost one of the first people who wants to leave a wedding reception. Seven days, I'm not sure I could handle it. But it was quite an elaborate affair that cost an enormous amount of money. It was a major event. In fact, all of the village would have been invited. The whole village would be there. And when the time came for the banquet, the bride would take, or the bridegroom would gather his bride, and they would have this long procession from the groom's house to the banquet facility. And the road before them, because it was night, was lit with lamps held by those people who were in the wedding party. And so these bridesmaids would also take part in this big celebration. They would welcome the bridegroom and his bride as he prepared to come. So it would be a major, major breach of etiquette for anybody not to be ready when that wedding couple showed up. Now, that's the whole background of our story. The formal ceremony has taken place. You've got ten virgins, bridesmaids, are by the road. They're waiting for the groom. Their lamps are lit. They're going to light the pathway. But for some reason, he's a little bit delayed. He doesn't show up quite on time. And so they all probably sit down and they all fall asleep. At midnight comes this shout, behold, the bridegroom is coming. And the virgins wake up and they prepare to relight their, uh, their lamps, which had gone out while they were sleeping. And guess what? Five of them had actually brought enough extra oil, were able to light their lamps, and these so-called five foolish virgins had no extra oil. But they said, can we borrow some of yours? But the other virgins said, no, you can't have any. 
They even suggested that you might go off and buy some more oil. But by the time they did that and got, the door was shut. They couldn't get in. The sad end of that story, you remember those last words? It says, later the others came. Sir, sir, they said, open the door for us. But he replied, I tell you the truth. I don't know you. Isn't that interesting? I don't know you. You'd have thought he'd have known the bridesmaids, wouldn't you think so? But in this case, he said, it's too late. I don't even know you anymore. See, this is a little slice of life from a wedding that kind of went south pretty quick. Now, the focus of the story is on these ten bridesmaids. Five were wise. Five were foolish. Five had oil. Five didn't have any oil. Five were ready. Five weren't ready. Five got into the banquet. Five got shut out. Now, all of this Jesus said, I'm teaching this to you because there are going to be some people who are going to be ready when the Son of Man comes back. And there are going to be some people that when Jesus comes back on Judgment Day, will that will not be ready. Now, one of the most striking facts about this story is how similar these ten virgins were. They were pretty much alike. And you think about it, all of them had been invited. They reacted positively. All ten had gone out to welcome the bridegroom. All of them had their lamps with them. Uh, All of them wanted to see the bridegroom. All of them were in the right place at the right time for the right reason. All of them wanted to actually get into the wedding reception. All of them had at least enough oil to start with. All of them fell asleep waiting for the bridegroom. All of them were awakened by the same midnight cry. All got up to prepare their lamps. All appeared to be ready for the bridegroom to come. But that last statement is crucial. There was something different. They were all alike, but there was something different. What if I could stand before you ten bridesmaids, ten virgins this morning, in no particular order, and I would ask you to pick out the wise ones, pick out the foolish ones. Could you do it? The answer is probably not, although a few of you would want to take a stab at it. You'd probably say, I don't know, number two, she looks bored. She doesn't want to be here. Get her out of the group. Some of you might go say, ah, six is chewing gum. You shouldn't be chewing gum at a wedding. And there might be some of you go, I live next door to ten. Get her out of here. <laughs> you don't want her to be part of your wedding reception. But see, there was no way in advance to tell the difference between these women. It, it, who was wise, who was foolish. And to the untrained eye, they were all the same. But here's my next point. There was one crucial difference. One crucial difference. You couldn't see it by casual observation. You couldn't see it by how they were dressed. They all looked alike, probably dressed alike, kind of like most weddings today. But there was something that was just not readily visible. Because five of them were wise and got in. Five of them were foolish and got shut out. Now, what makes the difference? Well, you have to go back to the Bible Look back at verse 5 because it offers us a very important clue. It says, the bridegroom was a long time in coming, and they all became drowsy and fell asleep. Now, where was the bridegroom? I was kind of wondering when I first time I heard this. I wonder where he was at. Why was he late? Well, the text doesn't say, and because the text doesn't say, I guess it's not all that important. It had to be something, though, rather important for him to delay. It didn't have anything to do with his reluctance to be married, because we know he does ultimately show up with his bride. He doesn't cancel or postpone the wedding at all. 
And that brings us to a key point. Five of the virgins figured out that he might be late, he might be delaying, so they brought along a little extra oil. And that's why they were prepared when he finally showed up. Now, before we feel sorry for those other five oilless virgins, I want you to think about this. The foolish virgins knew the bridegroom was coming. They knew he was going to get married. They knew he'd come to the banquet, and they knew they needed oil. So it was not a lack of information or inaccurate information. All ten virgins started with the same uh, facts. They had everything they needed to know, and still... Five of them were not ready. So let me ask you a couple of questions. Question number one, if they apparently managed to go out and buy extra oil, as the text tells us, and they did, why were they not allowed to come when they showed up later? Well, the answer is just that. They were too late. The door was shut. I mean, no doubt these gals, I mean, their intentions were great, uh, but You know, good intentions are not enough. I mean, once the door is shut, it's not going to get opened again, no matter how long and how loud you might stand out there and shout and whine and complain and pound. Another question you might ask yourself is, what does the oil represent in this story? Now, the best answer is that it it, uh, represents the inward preparation of the heart for the Lord's return. It represents a truly converted person. Now, the reason I say that is because in the Old Testament, oil stood for the presence of the Spirit in a person's life. Now, we might say that the oil represents uh, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit that accompanies true conversion. And so these five wise virgins represent those whose hearts have been truly changed by the power of the Holy Spirit. The other five represent kind of what I would call religious people. Uh, who may have been convicted by the Spirit a little bit, but never really got to the point of saying, yes, Jesus Christ is my Lord and my Savior. Now, when we think about this stuff, we need to remember that Jesus, why Jesus told this parable. He was talking to a bunch of church people. He was talking to a bunch of insiders. He was talking for church members, religious people. It was for some people who claimed to have an attachment uh, to Jesus and who professed some allegiance to him. So in close, let's take a look at some lessons that we can learn. Some lessons from modern day churchgoers. Now, I want you to start by thinking, here's the first one. Consider the true nature of the visible church. Now, as far as I know, every Sunday, two churches gather at 911 West Mount Vernon in Nixa, Missouri. There is an outward church, and there is an inward church. The outward church is everybody who just shows up at this place. They come to Redeemer. It consists of members, uh, regular attenders, friends, visitors. Some people are just checking it out for the first time, don't quite know what's going on yet, but they just happen to be here. That's the outward church. The visible church contains both the converted and the unconverted. That's why a long time ago, I, I don't assume that everybody here is a follower of Jesus Christ. I just don't. Because uh, I know that sitting at McDonald's all day will not make you a Big Mac. I know standing in your garage, you will never turn into a Kia Sedona van. It just doesn't work that way. But, it can, but you know, the visible church are people uh, who know the Lord, 
Some who are seeking the Lord, and some who couldn't spell Lord if you spotted them the first four letters. They don't quite know what's going on. That's kind of a typical church. But see, this visible church is the converted and the unconverted. It consists of people who know the Lord, some who are seeking the Lord, and some who just plain simple aren't sure why they're here. But now let's talk a minute about the inward church. The inward church is what we sometimes call the invisible church. It's made up of true believers who know and believe in their hearts that Jesus Christ is Lord and Savior of their life, and they tend to be here week in and week out. See, the point of Jesus' parable to these church people uh, is to remind them that just because you go to church doesn't necessarily mean that you're born again. I mean, people come to church for all kinds of reasons. I mean, some are good reasons, some are bad reasons. I had a person who wanted to join a church I was pastor of one time. Uh, he told me, I asked him why he wanted to join Trinity, and he said, because it would look good in my obituary someday. Really? Do you plan to come? Uh, no, not really. Maybe every once in a while. But see, it would look good when he died that he was a member of Trinity Lutheran Church. Some people come because of family ties. You know, Grandma and Grandpa got on them last night and said, why don't you come to church with me tomorrow morning? There are some people who come to church just to get out of the house. they got nothing else to do in the morning. There are some who come because some guilt has been laid on them. Some, some people come because they like the music. I mean, some people come to impress people or they feel guilty or aren't we supposed to come to church or maybe I can get a little brownie point with God. But you know, not all of those things are what I would call evil in and of themselves, but any or all can be excuses to keep you from coming to Jesus and still kind of holding him at arm's length. You see, coming to church is good. Coming to Jesus is way better. Uh, being baptized is a good thing, but being born again by the power of the Spirit is better. You know, giving money during the offering time is good, but giving your heart to Jesus is better. Being religious is okay. Knowing Jesus as Savior and Lord is way better. Now, this might surprise you, but you know, you could be Baptist or Methodist or Lutheran or Catholic or Mennonite or Presbyterian or Episcopalian or Church of Christ or Charismatic and still not be a true Christian. Now, there are some people who might even be shocked by that. They're like, what do you mean? I thought they belonged to church. They're not Christians. We don't really know for sure. I mean, church membership identifies you with this visible church, but the only true saving faith that makes you a member of the invisible church is to be able to answer the question, is Jesus Lord and Savior of your life? Let's think about this second one. Let's uh, consider the impossibility of borrowed faith. You don't need to raise your hand, but... Do any of you have children or grandchildren, for example, that are not as close to the Lord as you like, and you sure wish you could give them a little bit of your faith? You ever thought that? In my first church I pastored, we had a, a lady who lived down on the corner from the church in the pink house, and we kind of found out that uh, she had never, ever missed a church service of any kind. Lenten services, Advent services, Thanksgiving Eve, Thanksgiving Day, special occasions, Sundays. She hadn't missed a church service for something like 15 or 20 years. And I told my other pastor, I said, I wish I could just draw some blood out of here because I'd like to walk around in church and put some of that blood into other people. And maybe it would help take. But one striking feature of this parable occurs when the foolish virgins ask to borrow some oil. 
Now, the refusal might seem kind of selfish, unkind, unless you understand the situation. If they would have given them their oil, guess what? They would have been without oil. But the point is a little bit larger. Nobody can borrow faith. You can't get into heaven by sitting next to a saved person. I don't know if you've ever been asked this question, but if if you got to heaven and God looked at you and said, why should I let you into my heaven? What answer would you give? Well, uh, my mom was kind of a godly woman, and uh, that's why she was in heaven, so I guess I'll be there too. Eh. (laughs) Don't think so. Well, my dad was an elder for 40-some years, and then I replaced him as an elder for the next 20. Yeah, your dad might be in heaven. I don't think it's because he was an elder. And anyway, your eldership won't do you much good. It's not a free get-into-heaven card. Could you imagine a pastor saying, well, I went to Concordia Theological Seminary in Fort Wayne. Which, by the way, I did. You know, the best one. But you could substitute the name of any Christian school you wanted to. And the outcome will be the same. You cannot borrow somebody else's faith. Salvation is always, always a personal affair. You, you, Y-O-U, underline it a hundred times. You must believe in Jesus on your own, not on the faith of other people who are around you. Third thing to think about is to consider the coming end of the day of grace. Remember those solemn words back in verse 10? And the door was shut. No door stays open forever. Foolish virgins forgot to bring extra oil, went out to buy some, but by the time they got back, the door was closed. Too late. Today, the door of salvation is still open. It's been open all of history. When you die, though, guess what? The door closes. When Jesus comes back to judge both the living and the dead, guess what? The door closes. What are people going to do then? What will you do then? And I say that because I think some people think they're going to live forever. Uh, but, but what is your life? If you read scripture, uh, go back and read James chapter 3 out of verses, James 4, like 13 to 17. It talks about our, our life is kind of like a mist, fog in the morning. It's there, but the sun comes and suddenly it's gone. I mean, who knows what tomorrow morning is going to bring? I mean, some of you may live for another 20, 30, 40 years. Some of you may uh, live for another 20, 30, 40 days. Some of you may actually live only for another 20, 30, 40 minutes. I mean, who knows? The worst thing you could say is someday, someday I'll trust in Jesus because your someday may never come. I remember an old Christian song was called Tomorrow, sung by the Winans. And it's like, tomorrow, tomorrow, your tomorrow may very well be today. The Bible says, today could be the day of your salvation. Don't wait. Don't get caught outside that door. I mean, consider these, these, these women. When they got there, I mean, they, they met no disrespect. They probably liked the bride and the bridegroom. Um, but when they get there, what's the voice say from inside? I didn't know you. Don't know you. Now, they, they were his friends to the end. They were not his enemies. But in the same way, religious people can be tragically surprised when they present their outward righteousness in inward emptiness only to hear the Lord say, I don't know you either. 
I've even struck by how these five so-called foolish virgins are not called sinners. Do you notice that they're not called sinners? They are never accused of what we call gross immorality. Outwardly, they all seem like they were ready to meet the bridegroom. And it's clear that they wanted to see him, and that's part of the tragedy. Now, outwardly, all ten of those ladies were the same. Inwardly, dramatic difference. The five foolish virgins, just plain simple, were not ready. They couldn't borrow oil, and they couldn't beg their way in. Now, these women did nothing. And guess what? That was their problem. They did nothing. They did everything else, but did not do the one thing that was right. And that was to be ready for the bridegroom. I find it to be a sad thing to know that there are going to be people who are going to miss heaven. But, you know, it will be no one's fault except for their own. You won't be able to blame your mom or your dad or your ex-wife or your ex-husband or your in-laws or somebody that you consider to be a hypocrite who sits in the three rows ahead of you in church. And if you miss heaven and you ever wonder why, look in the mirror and you will see why. See, some people find out the value of Jesus way too late. They suddenly realize how wrong they've been, but the door has already been shut. And the world will one day declare that Christ's followers had made the wise decision. I told this story at the early service. I've told this quite often. My wife's heard it often enough. She can just pay, not pay attention for a while. But you, if you know that the door is only going to be open for a while and you find somebody who doesn't know about that door, what's one of the best things you could do for them? How about tell them about the door? I do coffee shop evangelism. I like to go to coffee shops. and I just sit around and I kind of listen to people. And if I have a chance to enter into a conversation, I will. Several months ago, I happened to be at a coffee shop. I was reading a book on my, on my phone. I happened to look up at one point, glanced across the room, only one other person in this room, a young girl, sitting with a laptop. We kind of acknowledged each other. I went back, and then I heard a voice say, um, What are you doing? I said, I'm reading a book. Oh, um, who's it by? I said, Tim Keller. Oh, what's it about? I said, Jesus, and she went, oh, hmm, and went back. Now, she didn't want to hear about Jesus. That, that's what I thought, Jesus, oh, hmm. So what do you do, ignore that? I said, what are you doing? <laughs> I'm writing a paper for high school. Oh, really, which high school do you go to? Branson. Oh, you're a pirate. Yeah, I'm a pirate. So what's your, your paper about? Well, we're supposed to write a paper about our life so far. I said, how old are you? She's 17. I said, I could write a story about my life so far. That'd fill a whole book. And anyway, I said, so tell me, how has your life been so far? And she gave me a two-word reply. It sucks. Boo. What did you do with a 17-year-old girl who said her life sucks? <laughs> Sorry about that. You're on your own, chick. I thought for a minute, and I finally said, Would you give me five minutes to come over and sit at your table and see if I could help you de your life? 
Now, you've got to make up a word sometimes. And she looked at me about the way you would picture a 17-year-old girl looking at a 70-year-old man. And she finally said, okay. Well, I always carry these little divine plans with me when I go places. And I pulled it out. I just I spread it out. There's eight pictures. The divine plan about how in the beginning God created this world all the way down to how sin comes in and how you can actually come into a right, right relationship with Jesus. And I said, I'm going to give this to you. And she said, oh, I can't remember what you told me. I said, that's why I flipped it over. I said, it's all written out for you on the backside, including Bible passages. And she took it and she stuck it in her purse. Then I said, but do you ever go to church? And she said, well, not really. And I said, oh, so not at all. She said, got me. I said, would you ever think about going to church? Eh, maybe. I said, what kind of church do you think you'd like to go to? Well, she didn't have any idea. I said, how would you like to go to a church where uh, they sit in pews, the pastor wears a dress, um, they, they play an organ, they sing a, a lot of songs that come out about the 15th and 16th century and stuff like that. And she's like, oh, dear God, no. And so she actually knew who God was. And I said, okay, what if you uh, found a church that... Uh, Maybe the pastor dressed kind of casual, maybe not even a tie, kind of funny, but had really good life advice based on the Bible. And the music was kind of upbeat and music like you might hear normally. Would you like a church like that? And she said, yeah, I think so. Well, I'm beginning to filter out churches I know in Branson and I immediately knew one church to recommend, so I said, you ought to go to this church. I said, in fact, you're going to probably meet people at that church who go to high school with you, because this is a big church, and it's got a big youth group. I said, I think you're going to be surprised. And she said she'd think about it. Well, I ran into her about a month later. Guess what? She'd been to church several times, met kids from high school that she didn't even realize were Christians, which is a whole other problem. Come on, Christian kids, you need to share your faith with people, too. And she's thinking about going back. Now, I've not seen her again for some time. I don't know what, what the end of the story is. But it reminds me that the door of salvation is always open. It also reminds me that someday the door is going to be shut. It also reminds me that I want to make sure that I'm inside that door if it does shut. And it also reminds me of my Christian responsibility to point other people to that door as well. May God bless us in that pursuit. In Jesus' name. Amen. At this time, we are gathering our tithes and our offerings.